so glad you've joined us on the ERLC podcast to explore how the Bible addresses important cultural issues pertaining to life, religious liberty, marriage and family, and human dignity, and how we can walk in wisdom for God's glory and for the flourishing of our neighbors. If you're enjoying this podcast and find it helpful, please leave a review wherever you listen. This will help more people find and benefit from what we're learning together. We are grateful for the time you take to join us for these conversations. Today's society is a confused one, even when it comes to basic matters of sex and gender. So at the ERLC's national conference, Denny Burke addressed attendees with an important message titled, A Gospel-Centered Assessment of Gender Identity, Transgender, and Polygamy. We hope this message will equip you to talk to your neighbors with the compassion of Christ. I want to tell you a story that NBC News reported on a couple of years ago about Josie Romero. And if you were to see Josie Romero, Josie Romero would look like your average prepubescent girl, 11 years old. Turns out, though, with Josie, not everything is as it, as it seems. Josie was born uh, not as Josie, but as Joey. And Joey was born biologically as a boy. Somewhere along the way, however, he began to have deep conflicts of identity, feeling himself Even though his body was biologically male, he felt himself to be on the inside female. And so at some point along the way, he assumed a female identity, and his parents came alongside and and supported this. And he began behaving. He began dressing like a little girl. And so he completely gave up any male identity so that he could look and act like a little girl, who he felt himself to be on the inside. After he turned 11 years old, he found himself on the edge of puberty and was wanting for himself to have sex reassignment surgery right there at the edge of puberty. He wanted to make the change permanent and inefficial. His parents were thinking about this. How Can you make a permanent change like this when a child is so young? And so what they were considering doing is something that is actually an option out there for day today for children who feel like this, is they were considering putting Josie on hormone suppressors to delay puberty indefinitely until he could be old enough to kind of make these kinds of permanent decisions himself. But as NBC News was doing this report, there was this really telling moment in Josie's story. They were showing Josie looking through these these dresses for a photo shoot, and, and Josie comes up to his father, and he says this. He says, he says Daddy, is this okay? Can I do this? Now, here's the moment of truth. Can you do this? And if you face that question, if you're a parent, maybe if you're a friend, you're going to have to answer that question. Can, can you do this? Which means, should I do this? That's what it means. And it's the moment of truth because what do you say in answer to that question? turns out in the report that Josie's father had been uncomfortable with this transition all along, but with that question, his resolve just sort of melted away all at once. And he says, and and this is his words, the father's words, he says, at that point, all of this became 
a reality to me, and I no longer had a son. And I had to put all my feelings aside to embrace my daughter. So here's the question. How does a parent get to the point that they're willing to put all of those feelings aside, whatever those reservations are, to embrace a social identity for their child that contradicts a bodily identity? Now, it's very clear that Josie's father loved Josie, uh, but it was also very clear that Josie's father had reservations about accepting this desire on the part of his son, which was very deep-seated and very honest and real, but nevertheless... He had, he had reservations about accepting this. And so, but nevertheless, he did accept it. The question is, why did he do that? And, and the answer to this is, is that um, no man is an island, and we're living in the middle of a culture right now that has been, not for the last decade, but for the last decades, been in a, a, an enormous transition in terms of our understanding of gender and sexuality. And this transition presents us with a challenge. The spirit of the age has redefined gender as a spectrum with no normative connection to a person's biological sex. So in this way of thinking, in this kind of transition that we've been going through for the last 40 or 50 years, a person is whatever they think themselves to be. As long as it's sincerely held and felt, a person is whatever they feel themselves to be. In this way of thinking, if a girl perceives herself to be a boy, then she is one, even if her biology says otherwise. If a boy perceives himself to be a girl, then he is one, even if his biology says otherwise. Gender is uh, more or less self-perceived and self-determined, not by the biological realities that the Creator has embedded, embedded into every cell in our bodies, but by psychological realities that people feel powerfully. So the title of this section is, Is There a Slippery Slope, a Gospel-Centered Assessment of Gender Identity, Transgender, and Polygamy? And really, this is mainly going to be about transgender. We'll have a smidge of polygamy at the end. But the main thing that I want to do here is is try to set before you what is, I think, the next phase in the LGBT um, uh, movement and, and, I would argue, revolution. So we call it a slippery slope simply because a revision of sexual and gender norms has implications beyond the original revision. And so while many people in our society are beginning to accept, I I, I think we see this clearly, many people are accepting the revision on gay sexuality, it's same-sex sexuality. It's not at all clear to me yet where we're going in terms of... um, Uh, this revision on gender and transgender. I'm not sure that people have looked down the slope at the implications of those changes for the issues of transgender and and even polygamy. But I think those those changes are are certainly upon us, and we need need to see how these entailments um, affect us, and we need to see them in light, the clear light of biblical truth. So whenever you hear LGBT, transgender is the T in, in LGBT. It's also considered to be the next phase of the um, gay rights revolution. That's not to say that the um, LGBT movement and causes are over. Um, it certainly isn't. But it is to say that there is a kind of, in our culture right now, a certain sense of inevitability about it, especially as you think about gay marriage, expanded to 32 states now. I think if you're being conservative within the next five years, certainly will be the law of the land in every state. Um, I think a survey of the cultural landscape can only lead us to the conclusion 
But the, this cause, the LGBT cause, especially as it relates to marriage, is, has really been a success. And so in terms of culture war, they, they're, they're winning in that sense. But take a look at the primary agenda items of the LGBT cause over the last uh, 20 years. Um, gays serving open, openly in the, in the military. That's happened. Majority public opinion accepting um, uh, homosexuality is normative. That's happened. Gay marriage, legal nationwide. That's almost happened. So there's, there can be no question that Americans have been undergoing a steady change in attitudes on, with respect to homosexuality. But at some point in the last decade, America went, be, went from being a majority anti-gay marriage country to a majority pro-gay marriage country. And so the big question is this. How did that massive change come about? Um, if you're going to understand the next phase of, of the revolution, you need to understand the, the first phase. In her 2012 book, Victory, the Triumphant Gay Revolution, Linda Hirschman argues that the um, LGBT movement began in a weaker position culturally than either the civil rights or the women's rights movements that preceded it. Nevertheless, activists were able to move it forward and achieve far more in far less time than either of those other groups. And so the question is, why? Why was that able to happen? And, and Hirschman says this. She says that the movement succeeded uniquely and in large part because at the critical moments, its leaders made a moral claim. And that moral claim is gay is good. Hirschman is absolutely right about this. The LGBT movement has been making a fundamentally moral claim, and it's the triumph of that moral claim that has ushered in these social changes that we're witnessing now. This is the entailments of, of the sexual revolution, which carries with it a moral claim. The public is increasingly seeing this issue as a civil rights issue. The next step in society's march toward greater freedom and equality. That's what it is. That's a moral issue in, in the way that it's being presented. And so to oppose that progress is increasingly seen as backwards and irrational. Because gay is good, the public space can no longer tolerate those who would say it's, it's not good, which makes it a problem if you believe what the scriptures teach and you bring that message into the public space. Those who say gay is not good are throwbacks and they stand in the way of human rights and social progress. And so to understand the transgender revolution, you have to understand that it is following in a very similar path, very similar trajectory of the, of the gay marriage revolution that we've been witnessing. And one of the key moments in the, the gay rights revolution happened in 1973 when the American Psychiatric Association removed homosexuality from its list of disorders. So this is kind of a lagging indicator, but I mean, this was, this was a sign that, that things were, were changing in 1973 in terms of people's attitudes about this. Transgender, which was uh, in previously known as gender identity disorder in that same manual, was removed last year from the list of disorders. And now if you go in and read it, it talks about gender dysphoria, but it's not a, it's not a, it's not a disorder anymore. So we know the script uh, of where this is going. And so um, leaders in the movement are self-consciously pursuing a redefinition of gender as the next phase of the larger gay rights movement. So in the last uh, year and a half, two years, there's been 
cover stories on Time Magazine and on Newsweek about just this, that this is the very next phase. And in, um, in fall of about a year and a half ago, uh, E.J. Graff asked and answered the very question, what's next? What's the next phase of this revolution? And now that the LGBT cause has triumphed, and, and she, she meant the uh, gay marriage cause, what do we do next now that gay marriage looks like it's going to be inevitable in all the states? And she, she said this, and I want to read to you something at length so that you can hear this, that I'm not making this up. So then what? Should the coalition of lesbians, gay men, bisexuals, and transgender people declare victory and disband now that we have gay marriage? Once we can marry the person whom we love, are we done agitating for political change under the rainbow flag? In a word, no. There's a much larger cultural question that deeply deserves our country's attention. It has to do with gender. The way our culture, our politics, and our legal system treats femininity masculinity, and everything in between. It may be okay soon for a woman to marry a woman and for a man to marry a man everywhere in the United States, but it's not even close to being okay for a boy to like Barbies and sparkly pink dresses or to swish when he grows up, or for a girl to be so masculine that people nearly double, uh, that people, people nearly do a double take trying to figure out which sex she fits. It's not okay yet. For someone apparently born male to grow into womanhood or for someone who started life considered female to make it clear he's a man. As for the rest of us, we are still far more than we understand, herded unnecessarily by our sex, by the stereotypes associated with how a woman or a man should act. It needn't be this way. And if we as a country make the right legal, cultural, political, and educational decisions in the years to come, if we are willing to listen to and learn from those on the gender margins, we can make room, more room for us all. What I'm describing, a larger direction in which I believe the LGBT movement is turning next, won't be easy, but it's crucially important, and I have no doubt that, as with the battle for same-sex marriage, breaking the nation out of its gender straitjacket is a fight we can win. That's Newsweek magazine, fall of 2012. So here's what's coming to a pew near you and me. It is not merely that we will be treated as old-fashioned for holding the line on biblical gender norms. We're going to be facing the same kind of challenges for holding to those norms that we're, that we're facing now for holding to what the Bible says about marriage. In other words, there's going to be the same kind of opposition from the outside to being faithful um, inside the church. And so what this author is saying in Newsweek is that breaking the nation out of its gender straitjacket will involve making a fundamentally moral claim. It's going to be transforming a culture to say that transgender is good, just like it came to the conclusion that gay is good. So that's, that's where this trajectory is, is going. And to oppose that claim will to be seen as backwards and irrational. Now, obviously, most of us in here are, are Christians. And Christians are going to have a concern about how to live faithfully in the light of, of this massive shift in our thinking, in our culture, about something so fundamental as gender and sexuality. And I'm going to talk about that in just a few minutes. But I'm wondering, I'm just wondering, I'm wondering if those who are not Christian and who do not share the worldview that Christians hold, if they're prepared to embrace those revisions yet. 
In other words, I'm not sure that we fully thought through the implications of all of this. For example, at the heart of the transgender revolution is this. It's the notion that psychological identity trumps bodily identity. Psychological identity trumps bodily identity, meaning that your gender identity has no necessary connection to your bodily identity. This view says that your personal sense of identity determines your gender and your sexual identity, potentially, not the body that God gave you. This is a reversal of Christian teaching um, from time immemorial that in the beginning God made them male and female, which is an affirmation in Genesis 1 that says that there is a basic biological distinction that God has embedded into the race. We're male and female. In Matthew 19, Jesus affirmed this when they were asking him about marriage and divorce. Jesus says, have you not read that in the beginning God made them male and female? Jesus affirmed the basic binary sexual distinction that we see um, in, in creation. He affirmed it right there in Matthew 19. Well, all of that assumption that used to be a, a large assumption in the culture is, is a bit up for grads right now because the, the connection between that binary sexual distinction is, has no necessary connection to the way that you identify as male or female. So what, what are the implications of this idea that, that psychological identity trumps bodily identity? Are we really ready to go in this direction? Fox News did an anonymous interview in 2009 with a person named uh, John. They named him John. That was a, a pseudonym. But this person, John, had been consumed with a feeling of dissatisfaction with his body for as long as he could remember. And so in this, this uh, report, it said this. It, it quoted from him, and I just want to give you some of what he said. He said, the first thing I can remember when I was about four or five years old and in kindergarten, and I remember riding in the subway, and opposite me, one of the kids in the playgroup had no left hand that was apparent. And I was really very curious about this. And I got up and I crossed the car. I tried to put my hand up his sleeve to try to figure out where his hand was. And um, he says he recalled other instances where he had vivid memories when he was 7 and 11 years old. And he said this, I remember two buses going in the same direction. And I was standing by the second bus. And I said to myself, if I just stick my leg under the rear wheel of this bus, it will run over it and it will have to cut um, to, to get his leg cut off. And then I can remember saying to myself, how will I ever explain why I did this? He was having an issue with a conflict between his psychological identity and his bodily identity. And to make a long story short, he felt like he was a one-legged man inside of a two-legged man's body. And they've given a name to this disorder, body integrity identity disorder. And there's a small portion of people, pop, uh, a percentage of the population that feels that they are not whole. In fact, there's a documentary about this called Whole. They don't feel that they're whole until they amputate otherwise healthy limbs. And I read about two people who did just that. One froze his leg until it was irreparably damaged. Another shot himself with a shotgun. No doctors will perform those surgeries, and so they had to, to injure themselves. But they were aiming towards being whole because they felt this this, this break between their bodily identity and what they felt themselves 
to be. So what do you think about this? Should a person in that kind of a position be allowed to amputate an otherwise healthy limb? What should we make of that? Most people sort of look at that and think, oh, that doesn't sound quite, quite right to me. What's the treatment for this? Doctors don't know a treatment for this. The only thing they've come up with is, well, you can do amputation if you can find a doctor to do it. So what are you supposed to think about this? Probably most people have a negative re response to this because there's a visceral idea that our bodies are revealing something to us about God's purposes. And God's purposes are, his purposes are revealed in, in what he made things for. If that's the case with the amputations of a healthy leg, what are we to make of, of the person who claims that they're a woman, who claims that she's a man trapped inside of a woman's body? There's a psychological identity in conflict with the biological identity. What do we think about that? You say, well, that's, um, why are you even asking that? Well, because one of the treatment protocols for gender dysphoria is surgery. And altering bodily identity to match what a person thinks about themselves. So that if a person is biologically a man, they feel themselves to be a woman, you surgically try to make them into a woman. What's the problem here? Is the problem damaged limbs, damaged body? Does the body need adjusting? Or does the thinking need adjusting? Our culture is saying today, you don't adjust your thinking, you adjust your body. And that's carried out in terms of the transgender revolution right now in, in spades. Is our culture ready to embrace this, the implication that psychological identity trumps bodily identity? I'm not sure, but it's going to have implications because it'll have implications for how we treat children who, are, who, who feel this way, who feel like Josie as a young boy that he wants to be a girl. Um, what, how do you address that? Um, would you allow um, amputations, essentially, or the postponement of puberty indefinitely through hormones, which, by the way, can have some very negative side effects like bone mass problems? People are doing this now. I read about one girl who had a, a mastectomy, a 60. Is this something that we're ready for? I'm not really sure. But we do have... A responsibility is the church of the Lord Jesus Christ to, to speak to this and to speak truth to this. The Bible is sufficient for our thinking on these things and for how we address these things and how we minister to people and how we love people. And so let me, let me suggest two things quickly that we need to be doing in the face of this challenge. And when I say we need to be doing, I'm thinking mainly about the way we address these issues in our churches. These issues are in our churches. And so we need to be thinking about this. And two things are truth-telling and what I'm going to call gender discipling. We have got to tell the truth about what the Bible teaches about gender. And among other things, the Bible is clear that there's a normative connection between biological sex and gender identity. Now, when I say normative connection, I, don't, I do not mean that everybody feels things as they should. I'm saying that Sometimes when there's dissonance between those two realities, the Bible is telling us the norm that we should be feeling even if we don't. I'm not denying that this can be a deeply painful reality. 
and that it can be deeply distressing. Um, we, we acknowledge that and affirm that. But nevertheless, the Bible teaches that the way we think about ourselves should not be how we're feeling, but by what the Bible says. That's how we define ourselves. And so the normative connection that I'm talking about is not defined by the sociological observation that a certain percentage of the population experiences their own gender in a way that conflicts with their biological sex. That sociological norm knows nothing of the fall. It confuses what is with what ought to be. The norm that we must insist on is the norm that is not normed by any other norm, and that's the Scripture. Last summer, uh, Slate.com, or actually summer before last, Slate.com published an article about a youth camp for gender non-conforming uh, little boys, and it's this uh, retreat. It was an an anonymous location. They didn't want people to know where it was. There's a retreat for prepubescent young men who behave in ways that are feminine, who, who feel like they're psychologically something different than what their body is indicating. And so the, the camp provides a place for parents to bring their children and they can feel protected as these young boys act in ways and behave in ways that they wouldn't normally do in public. And so there's full color. You can go on the Internet right now and look at pictures from the camp. The little boys are wearing dresses and they're, they're walking down runways and dressing up like princesses and painting their toenails and putting on makeup and all of these things. And all of it with their parents, they're looking on and, and in approval. But there was one particular line from the report that stood out to me. It said this. It says, although it is unknown if the kids at the camp will eventually identify as gay or transgender, or even if the way gender and sexuality are defined throughout society will evolve, the camp allows the kids to look at themselves in a completely different way. Now, listen to this. It's not even clear if the way gender and sexuality are defined throughout society will evolve. In other words, the revisionists are offering us norms today that they cannot promise will be the norms tomorrow. This could all change again. And what is insisted on today could be changed tomorrow so that something else is new. Now think about the moral confusion of that. It's not just these boys' gender that is not yet known. It's the very definition of gender and sexuality that is still up for grabs. And the author admits that the sexual revolutionaries and the gender revisionists don't really know where they're trying to take us. And yet they're calling us after them with our children to go and follow them. Parents are already being chastised for not letting their children act out in these kinds of uh, gender-bending ways. Why? Because now gender, uh, now some researchers are saying that gender identity and gender expression are kind of fixed by a certain age. And by a certain age, if a child is still insisting on a transgender identity, that identity is almost certainly going to persist. And they're telling us on that view, trying to undo that identity is as brutal and damaging as trying to undo sexual orientation. And it results in risks and drug and alcohol abuse and depression, all these other things. This is what we're being told. So it's a moral claim. How can you do this to people? And so there are a rising number of reports of parents who are, who are doing this with their children, with the hormone therapies and the, re, and the gender reassignment surgery. Why? Because the moral claim that transgender is good is so intense that it's permissible to surgically alter a child's body to match his sense of self, but it's bigoted to try and change his sense of self to match his body. 
Yet we have to ask, I think this is an obvious question. If it's wrong to attempt to change a child's gender identity because it's fixed and meddling with it is, is harmful, if it's wrong to attempt that because it's fixed, then why is it morally acceptable to alter something as fixed as the body of a minor child? The moral inconsistency here is, is plain. And so, and to that, we have to add the observation that the vast majority of children who report transgender feelings grow out of those feelings. In fact, one study says about 70 to 80% of children who feel this way grow out of it eventually when they get to a certain age and they assume a gender identity that matches their body. Why would you change a body of a child in the midst of that reality? So uh, this is why exactly where the Christian vision of humanity has so much to offer people like the ones that we read about in these, these articles. The Bible puts solid ground beneath our feet so that we don't have to guess at what it means to be male and female, so that parents don't have to sow even more confusion into their child's bewilderment. The spirit of the age tells us that raising a little boy to be a little boy can be cruel and abusive if that boy wishes to be a girl. They're telling us that gender is a choose-your-own-adventure story, and the parent's job is just to get out of the way and just let it happen. The Christian vision is different from this. It's different from this and so very freeing and affirming of what we were really meant to be before God. In the biblical view, every single person is created in the image of God. Deeply conflicted persons and people who aren't deeply conflicted over gender identity. Every single person is created in the image of God. God did not make us into undifferentiated automatons. On the contrary, he made us male and female. And that fundamental biological distinction defines us. Gender norms, therefore, have their roots in God's good creation, and they're revealed in nature, and they're revealed in Scripture. The task of parenting, the task of discipling, requires understanding those norms and to inculcate those norms into our children and to those who want to follow Christ, even those who have deep conflicts about these things. This is a truth-telling discipline that rests on the Bible's teaching about the connection between biological sex and gender identity. But this assumes that we know what the Bible teaches about gender identity. It assumes that we know what the Bible teaches about manhood and womanhood. Problem is, a lot of people don't know what the Bible teaches about those things. That's where the issue is. We have so become awash in... um, Feminist ideology, post-sexual revolution ideology that people don't even remember these things anymore. And so that brings us to our second obligation. We have to be not only truth-tellers, but we have to be gender-discipling. If it is true that God reveals gender norms according to biological sex, then making disciples and raising children necessarily involves teaching them to live within biblical norms of manhood and womanhood. For Christians, this necessarily puts us in a countercultural posture. There's no way to say this in our culture right now that's going to be popular. But it does raise a question for us. What are we to do um, when we think about manhood and womanhood? Um, when we think about manhood and womanhood, are we thinking just sort of culturally encoded definitions of gender? Is that what we're talking about? Is, is manhood just equal to machismo? Um, must all men like sports and the outdoors and grunting and... Leaving the seat up, is that what we're talking about? We talk about manhood. 
Is womanhood, femininity, is it just some kind of stereotype about opinionless passivity? Must all women be focused on their appearance or shopping or whatever stereotype you want to plug into that? Or is there more to these things? The response to these questions from some has been to say, well, when you talk about manhood and womanhood, you talk about gender norms, you're talking about just cultural things that change. There's no connection between these things. The problem with that is, is that's not how the Bible speaks about these things. The transgender challenge forces us to define the relationship between biblical gender identity and culturally encoded expressions of gender identity. The transgender challenge does not allow us to be indifferent about this question. This means that we will be called upon to bring our consciences into line with biblical gender norms. I could do a whole other message on what this looks like, but just a parenthesis here. There's a way of raising my son that differs with the way I'm raising my little girls. And it's not about getting him to like sports and trucks and hunting. Okay, Um, frankly, I don't care about that. What I do care about is that he learned to be a leader and a protector and a provider. He gets in worse trouble if he pushes his little sister down than if she pushes, pushes him down. And I pick him up and I say, son, this is your sister. It is your responsibility to take care of her. I believe it's my job to teach him that his disposition towards his sisters, towards his mother, and towards women is one of protection and care. I believe when I'm doing that, I'm teaching him how to be a man. And I'm teaching him how to be a husband. In other words, these are not optional things that we're talking about. We're talking about the essence of what it means to be a disciple as image bearers, male and female, created in God's image. So, What do we make of of these things? Let me add, they asked me to say something about polygamy. Let me say a a brief thing about polygamy. At first blush, the connection doesn't, may not seem altogether clear. We hold them together in this talk simply because um, there's a way that you can talk of them both as on a slippery slope. We hold them together simply because polygamy is an entailment of the worldview of the program of the sexual revolutionaries, whether they realize it or not. For this new understanding of gender and sexuality, um, it's saying something. It's giving us not just a new definition of marriage. It's giving us a new definition of what it means to be a human being. And that new definition comes with an entirely new set of, of norms. We've been assured by some that the marriage revolution ends with same-sex marriage. But the point of bringing this up is, is once you remove the norm, the heterosexual norm, none of the other norms are stable anymore. Uh, The monogamous norm, that's not stable anymore. Um, The permanence norm, that's already gone because of um, no-fault divorce. So the the entire definition, what Sharif was talking about yesterday up here, is all up for grabs. Once you have a revision, there's downstream effects of this. If we had more time, we could talk about what the Bible says about this, but I'm going to have to pass over it for the sake of time. But here we go. Uh, Let me just finish with this. I, I serve as a pastor at uh, my local church, and as a church, we've been praying for one of our members who is a young college co-ed who um, 
recently befriended a, a transgender student in one of her classes. And uh, she was talking about the interactions that she was having with the student, and she was really just wanting to, to love this student, be friends with this student. And in many ways, she was just sort of bewildered at the beginning about how, how to relate to this transgender student. And she wondered, do I call him by his real name or by his female name that he's assumed? Do I refer to him with masculine pronouns or, or feminine ones? Can I be a faithful witness if I acknowledge in my speech that he's a, he's a female? I mean, what, what am I supposed to do here? And I thought all of those were great, great questions. But recently she told me the biggest prayer need, last spring actually, the biggest prayer need that she felt was this, how do I love this person? but still be truthful about where I stand? That's the big question. The question that she's asking is the same one that all of us are facing. How do we speak the truth in love when so many do not regard the truth as loving? Thank God we don't have to choose between the two. The Bible does not treat them, truth and love, as, as, as if they're at odds. Indeed, love always rejoices with the truth. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 13, love always rejoices with the truth. So we love our neighbors best when we give them the truth. And the truth begins with the gospel of Jesus Christ and eventually communicates the Bible's larger vision for gender and sexuality. But we can't get trapped into this view that if we say the truth, we're somehow not being loving. And it's that kind of a vision that we have to be pursuing. The transgender challenge is a symptom of what happens when a culture has lost its way. It also shows us how much the church needs to be a counterculture, bearing witness to the glory of gender differences that God has made. We bear witness not to constrain or to condemn, but to show the world that the happiest and most joyful way to live is in line with our creator's design. That's why we do it. We are living and witnessing for other people's joy. God has made us all in his image as male and female, and there's great glory and happiness in embracing his purposes for us. And God's glory and our happiness are not at odds when it comes to gender identity. In fact, they're intimate friends. I've left about five minutes, and um, I have said a bunch, and I've left many things unsaid. So I'm going to take five minutes for your questions. And if you have a question, I would ask you to stand where you are and yell. Yes. Yeah, great question. How do we biblically address people that are born intersex? I wrote a book called What is the Meaning of Sex? And in that book, there's a chapter that talks about intersex. I would make a distinction between intersex and transgender in that uh, transgender is where a person has a perceives a psychological identity at odds with their biological identity, and whereas intersex is a, a, a catch-all term that refers to a range of conditions where a person at birth is there's an ambiguity with regard to their their biological sex, either primary sex characteristics or secondary sex characteristics, and there's a number of different con- conditions that fall under the label of intersex. For most people, um, when a baby is born or when they look on the sonogram, you can just sort of look and everything's in place and you can say it's a boy or you can say it's a girl. For folks with intersex, it's a certain um, population of everyone that's born. That's not altogether clear. And um, so I, if you want to look at some of the specific conditions 
underneath intersects, I would, invite, I would encourage you to look at my book. But let me just say this. Um, intersex is often brought up because it's sort of a defeater for the, a sexual binary um, that God has made us male and female, and intersex disproves that because there are some people who are born in between. They're born with, without certain primary sexual characteristics or a blend of both male and female. And my, my main, there's a number of things that I would say to this. Number one is, it first of all calls for our compassion and our love, just like anybody else. Um, um, second thing I would say is that there are chromosomal realities that I believe are a base, there's a basic binary there, even if it's not manifest in the physical characteristics that you can see with your eyes. And what I argue in my book is that we shouldn't ignore those chromosomal binaries. But here's the issue. We live in the modern age where we can have a, no, we can have a notion of what those chromosomal uh, realities are. What do you do in, in the ancient world? What do you do in the biblical world where maybe all these things aren't clear? Listen, living in a fallen world doesn't mean that we can see everything perfectly and we can know everything perfectly. And I think the Bible speaks to this. Jesus spoke to it in Matthew 19. We talked about eunuchs. Some, some people are uh, made eunuchs by men. Uh, some people uh, make themselves eunuchs for the kingdom, and some people are born eunuchs. Um, the Bible is not unaware of the fact that certain people are born into the world where there's a, a biological ambiguity that's there. And I think in, in Matthew 19, primarily what Jesus is addressing is the issue of not being able to procreate, born with the inability to do that. So um, the Bible knows of this. It says that you can be faithful and a Christian even in an, in an intersex condition. That is not something that you should think is disqualifying. I see. Uh, I've got several. Can I right here on the front? Yeah. He's asking the, the issue of what do you make of sex changes when there's not obviously a chromosomal change that takes place. This is where we would have a, a pretty profound disagreement with our friends and neighbors who argue for a different understanding of transgender, the things that I'm saying here, I'm arguing that the Christian vision of humanity would mean you can alter your body through surgery, but it doesn't alter your identity, even if you perceive yourself that way. And just because things are cut off or added, it doesn't make you uh, other than what God created you to be. So in other words, there's, there's a nat, there's a, God's intention is revealed to us in special revelation in Scripture, but God's intention is also revealed in natural revelation. And our bodily identities are telling something to us about God's in intention for us and our identities. Thanks for joining us on the ERLC podcast. You can subscribe to the podcast at erlc.com. Join us next week as we hear another message about how Scripture helps us think about current issues.